What I'm going to talk about is not about COVID, but it could not be said, especially what I'll say in the first roughly 15 minutes, apart from COVID. And here's the reason. As we talk about the future of the church in the United States, which is our topic, but not our title, we wanted it to be something a little more memorable that would be a little more inspiring than saying the future of the church in the United States, because a lot about that, as we'll talk about, is pretty dark. COVID took trends that existed before COVID and generally accelerated them in addition to creating other dynamics and trends, especially in local congregations that did not exist before or did not exist certainly to nearly the same degree. The overall accelerating trend is measurable by most local congregations in terms of attendance statistics. But as everybody who's involved with the church, professionally or not, knows, attendance statistics tell you lots of other things. They're kind of like a pulse rate that way. You can learn lots of other things about someone's spiritual health and life and what's going on with them based on how often and whether they ever attend services. What COVID did to those dynamics that were already pretty much going down not just church membership, which seems to have peaked as a percentage of our nation's population in the 1950s. Church membership, but speaking of attendance, a little bit different. Not just do I belong somewhere, but how often am I there? That not only plummeted, obviously, in 2020 and 2021, but even for America's largest churches, which have been generally the stabilizing effect as attendance has gone down and the number of churches relative to the overall population has gone down, megachurches have usually picked up the slack as far as people attending. I'm not speaking theologically, just sociologically right now. Well, they lost two. They went down too, and they, they too have not come back to where they were. Now, of all the reasons that somebody might still be away, the number of sheer medical cases or the person having the sense that it's a medical problem is relatively small. The thing that was accelerated, that was there before and then picked up speed, is something a little harder to put your finger on, but observable when you talk to people, which is that they, for reasons that are hard to put your finger on, they fell out of the habit. They fell out of the habit. Now, what exactly does that mean? And what's happening to that person when he falls out of the habit? This is a situation that we don't have a lot of experience with in our own nation because our story about Christianization or Christianity's spread throughout the United States over time is largely like our story of settlement and, in fact, usually tracks the progress of settlement from the British North American colonies westward, which is that in every community, there's some set of buildings or somewhere that they take the first grade class from the local school to see something like this is the oldest house in our county or this is where the first Settlers built the first whatever it was, log cabin, ranch, depending on where you are. 
And now we live in much different houses that are more advanced and there are more people here. But not that things that were there or that settlement that was there just went away. So the story of the frontier is a story of beginnings followed by more or less steady progress. The American church is becoming something more like modern-day Detroit than where you take the first-grade kids. And what I mean by that is not just that Detroit looks different than it used to. It also had a lot more people than it now does. And that you can go there and find beautifully mown entire blocks that used to have houses all over them. So that it seems like everything is going backward. If we're not talking about church membership, just think of attendance. Any congregation at its beginning certainly wants its story, not necessarily to be going from five families to begin with to 3,000 families. The megachurch is not and never has been normal in American Christianity, not utterly normal. But that you don't come and then go away again. Churches that go away again could be found in things like ghost towns. Churches that go away again are in neighborhoods that used to be populated and now are no longer. You're not supposed to come only to go away again in a place still teeming with people. Now, there's a certain spirit for dealing with such a situation that is a little bit different from the spirit that generally occupies churches when they are stable. And that's largely what we'll talk about in this hour is what may be necessary for a future in which there are a lot more places like Detroit and many fewer places that are populated by stable or reasonably growing populations with a couple different varieties of more or less Orthodox Christianity so that your greatest problem is to educate your kids on why they're not Methodists or they're not Baptists or they're not Lutherans or whatever it is that you don't want them to be that the future maybe is a little wilder than the present and our immediate past. As we talk about that, let's talk first about a couple different dynamics of what this encroaching frontier, spiritually speaking, ecclesially speaking, looks like. What is it like to live in something more like Detroit than anywhere else? Before we talk then about what we will use to handle these things, and then especially what we will give up for reasons that I hope will become clear. What does the frontier look like as it advances on us? The first thing about the frontier is that it is a necessarily unstable place. It's an unpredictable place. This gets reflected when you're talking about the literal frontier in almost any memoir anyone has about it little kids encountering black bears with a rifle to defend themselves. Situations we just cannot imagine ourselves being in, let alone a 10-year-old child. It's a wild place. Stability has meant for American churches, not only that they generally should grow numerically, financially, and so on, but that as they grow, they would attain larger goals they had set out for themselves. Lutherans roughly 
50 and 60 years ago were more or less obsessed in a way incomprehensible to us now with hopefully, potentially, forming a single Lutheran church body for the entire United States. Not only would we not necessarily desire that now, certainly not under the terms that could be realistically offered, but the idea that you could have such a sense of cohesion and growth and prosperity is also somewhat unimaginable for most of us. What such a dream assumed was that things would continue to be stable and even stably, predictably growing. There would be more Lutheran schools and more Lutheran school teachers. There would be more Lutheran churches in more suburbs. And there were still Lutheran churches in lots of cities then. And that as these things grew, things would grow everything good. So that when we come together, we would come together for good. And that seemed more or less obvious. People objecting to that had to explain why. Why don't the Wisconsin Synod Lutherans want to stay with the Missouri Synod Lutherans? Well, they had really good reasons. Why don't the Missouri Synod Lutherans want to use the same book as everybody else? Well, they also had some pretty good reasons. But the idea of coming together was driven by a basic, unexplained, needless to be explained, optimism that in its own time, I think was very understandable because things were stable. If a lot of things are unstable, and we've talked a lot about the family, we've talked some about education and some about medicine, but if what we might have a good sense of is that things will be predictably unstable in almost any realm of life, then it's hard to conjure up such a vision of growth, of incredible unity, of anything applying without exception nationwide, like a whole church bureaucracy, which was also at the time growing. In addition to that, something to notice about the frontier is that it doesn't work the same way everywhere. If you ever look into this, there are certain areas of the United States that as they're settled are more or less empty of human population, and there are others that are still full of people. Upstate New York has a much larger and more powerful Indian Confederacy, the Iroquois Confederacy, that Alabama doesn't have and what's now West Virginia doesn't have. Frontier doesn't work the same way everywhere. This is very difficult for denominations like my denomination, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which are truly nationwide denominations, is that we don't face the same conditions nationwide. We never did. You always had to know more about infant baptism if you went to church in a Lutheran church in the South than if you went to a Lutheran church in Wisconsin. But what we mean by this is that as processes that we could identify just really narrowly and quickly and almost lazily as people have fallen out of the habit of coming to church, that's not advancing at the same rate or maybe even for the same reasons and certainly not in the same way everywhere. A population around your church that should have been, and their grandparents still are largely Southern Baptist, is a vastly different population than the one that I grew up with, which should have been and used to be varieties of mainline Protestant in the rural Northeast. They were secularized generations ago. Believe me, you don't want to. 
But that means that as local congregations or even regional coalitions of those things, we call them districts in the LCMS, react to new situations, they're never reacting to the same situation, not precisely. One thing about the frontier is that it necessitates you to take action on your own local level because guess what? No central person even necessarily understands what you're talking about. So it's one thing to handle populations that haven't been Christian in generations and another to deal with one which is recently becoming progressively more non-Christian as it seems most of the rising generation, the folks now in their 20s, even younger, are everywhere. Now, all of that means one more thing about the frontier, and that is that on a frontier, the center, which might have put you there in the same way that settlement companies usually sent the first settlers in any given colony, the center has relatively little importance. I'm not saying none, I'm saying relatively little. In the past, the center could work like this, that it could send people out and those people would know what they were doing based on instructions from the center, almost anonymously. This happened in my denomination in the 1950s that you would often graduate from seminary and every other man in a class at our biggest seminary in St. Louis would be sent out with about $20,000 and an automobile and a place to go. The historian of American religion, Martin Marty, was sent to Elk Grove Village, Illinois, for example, with that set of equipment. And you could put up a sign that would say that a new church was coming and people would be interested. And they might even show up when you said they were supposed to show up for the first time. The center could do that and the center could organize that. Why does the center decrease in importance as conditions become more unstable? A couple of reasons. Number one is the center itself is stressed. Sometimes the cavalry is not coming because they haven't recruited enough cavalry troopers. Sometimes the cavalry isn't coming because they have to staff the other three forts and you happen to be the fort they can't get people to for another month or so. If the center is stressed, as pretty much every American denomination is stressed in numbers and in finances, then the resources available to you from the center will necessarily also themselves be stressed. I'm not laying any of this out really to make anybody sad. I don't find reacting to these things to be really an emotional matter. It could be debatable. You can say, well, it's not as stressed as you think, or it's worse than you think. That's most often what people tell me. It's worse than you present it. But I don't do it for some kind of emotional effect because I don't find it productive for survival to say something that might sound nice or happier, but isn't in fact true. The center is stressed. Everybody is. The effects that you've heard about over the last two days regarding COVID on a social level or an emotional level or a spiritual level also affect the people in those institutions, even the oldest ones. Not to speak of 
demographic difficulty, like Dr. Scare referenced. He said that 57 was the age of an average LCMS Lutheran. That's actually the average LCMS clergyman. The average age of an LCMS Lutheran is 62. So the center is stressed. In addition to that, the center is not optimized for unstable conditions. It's probably optimized, as corporations often are, for immediate past or relatively recent past crises. So if you had a big problem in accounting 10 years ago, probably your accounting department is top notch. But maybe you haven't had a marketing problem in a long time, so you're maybe skating a little bit in marketing. A stable center is not optimized for operating on the frontier. It's assuming it's not even there. It might even be assuming, as very often talk in my own denomination assumes, that somehow we've got things covered. Whereas, in fact, in the state of Vermont, for example, which has plenty of people, we have two congregations. In Wyoming, which is the lowest population state, we have 40. So we're not necessarily optimized for what lies ahead of us. Vermont being a little bit more probably like the future, demographically speaking, people not going to church in very high numbers or percentages than anything else. And the third aspect of why the center decreases in importance is that only local people are going to have a sense of how to carry things forward because they have to deal with it and because the consequences of not doing so are real for them. It's very possible, in fact, my son has brought this up with me concerning one of our LCMS congregations somewhere in the country. If you correctly guess which of the 5,700 congregations it is, then kudos to you. But he was worried about being there when he grows up because he said, that church might be gone by the time I'm an adult. So he can look in the future and he can know from being there on the ground what the stakes are. We can't expect everyone in every other locale, let alone in whatever our center might be for our denomination, to know or to care. In order to think about this, I want you to consider the difference between two local congregations that you get in the book of Acts. The two local congregations are respectively Jerusalem and on the other hand, Antioch. Jerusalem is interesting because it's the one that has a dire prophecy connected to it that no other particular local congregation in the book of Acts has. The dire prophecy is, of course, repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it would have been well known to the earliest Christians that sometime after the death and resurrection of Christ, Jerusalem would face severe suffering, the city. And it would be better in that time not to have been born because of what would have to be gone through at that time that Jerusalem would be a site of intense affliction. It's the only one that has something quite like that and certainly something so clear from Christ's mouth. Now, Jerusalem, we have certain numbers for. 
similar to the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 respectively, that we know how many people were baptized on a certain day. And the number is in thousands. By anybody's metric, that's, that's a megachurch. And by the standards of recent past American Christianity, that is success. Now, it's got this dire prophecy attached, but something you might notice throughout the book of Acts is that the Jerusalem church doesn't necessarily behave in accordance with the mandate that Jesus gives at the beginning of the book. He says, beginning from Jerusalem, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if you work through the book, you're actually going to see the book kind of plays out that way. There's, you expand outwards geographically, generally, so that eventually you're going to get this group of guys who are largely from Galilee and entirely Jewish. And what they're going to do is they're going to spread the gospel to every nation outward and outward and outward and outward. Jerusalem doesn't really go in for that exactly. And something about it is so comfortable or familiar or pleasant that even after the persecution that results from the death of Stephen, the proto-martyr, the first martyr, that the apostles largely stay there. They kind of camp out there in Jerusalem. You remember that wish that Peter expresses at the transfiguration that they would have the booths and they would stay. Well, they, they kind of get that in Jerusalem. They get to stay or they choose to stay. And they don't necessarily go much of anywhere. We, for instance, see James, the brother of the Lord, in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem has a relationship to the rest of the church. That's totally true. That relationship, if you follow in the book, though, is largely one of difficulty and of critique. They're not particularly engaged in what we would call the mission or, or what I called earlier Christ's mandate there from chapter one, but they have a lot of critiques of what is going on out there. Now, Jerusalem is a site, of course, of suffering too in Acts. I mean, you can't forget that. It's a place where people are killed for the faith. So this doesn't mean, and I'm not talking about the validity of the Christianity of anything understanding itself as a center. That's not really the point. How can we go forward if we're spending incessant amounts of time figuring out, well, who's really, really as faithful as I am, which is what all kinds of talk like that assumes. What I'm saying is Jesus has a mandate. There's a spread that should happen. And Jerusalem does not participate. It just has critique to offer for everyone who actually does. That seems kind of natural almost for a center to do. There is a frontier set out for them, a place they should go to, people they should be in contact with, but a variety of things are going to keep them back from that. Of course, the most prevalent one in the New Testament is the Jew-Gentile distinction that's going to affect them time and time and time again in all kinds of permutations. Gets discussed in Acts 15, but not just in Acts 15. 
it's not so much that they have a certain background and that's the problem, or they live in the capital of the Jewish people and that's the problem. It's that they can't understand that there is a frontier to go to. So they participate relatively little. Antioch is different. Antioch sends out what we would call missionaries to a variety of places. And that has a knock-on effect that Antioch is not necessarily in control of. Antioch is not seemingly directly governing Derby or Lystra or Ephesus. But it is involved. It has sent people who have gotten to those places. So what is the difference? In the terms that we started out with, let's say it this way. Antioch accepts that Jesus wants them on the frontier. They are not accepting comfort as their native way of life and their birthright to be preserved. They accept that Christ is sending them somewhere that is uncomfortable and difficult. And that they are, even in Antioch, just by virtue of living there, already on that frontier. Not to speak of the places to which they send others. I think the greatest difficulty the American church has right now is incapacity to accept that Jerusalem is either going or gone. Now, that will not prevent lots of activity from happening in various forms of Jerusalem. It would sort of be fun, I think, to be a Southern Baptist and live in Nashville, Tennessee. It would be interesting. There would be lots of church politics to discuss and to talk about what the budget is for Lifeway Christian Resources and who's in charge of it and who got elected to the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee. That would be fun. But it might be something a little similar to worrying, as James does when Paul comes back to Jerusalem in the visit that's going to get him arrested and then eventually on to Rome, which is what he desires. James has a really good sense of how people in Jerusalem are going to socially react to Paul and what their suspicions of him are. It's a great church political meeting and great church political advice that James gives Paul. But it doesn't mean that there's still going to be a church in Jerusalem necessarily because they've navigated these church political difficulties. And it doesn't mean that that church in Jerusalem is participating in the mandate that Christ has laid out for it, which is really always the main thing. It just means that they have a handle on things that are soon to die. So what is it about Antioch or what it is about those sent out from Antioch, Paul being the most memorable figure from the book of Acts, that we might want to hold on to or keep in mind or understand as we go forward? So as we talk more positively for the rest of our time together, let's talk in this way, first about what is necessary to be done and then what is necessary to be given up. Necessary to be done, and all of this is drawn from Acts. There are other places we could have talked about. I try to keep it organized within one book for the sake of 
your understanding and your interest and your capacity, if these things are at all true, you can test them by the scriptures and maybe find them in other parts of the scriptures. The first thing to be done is that you understand that your advance is intentional. Now, when we think about intention, we usually think about group dynamics. Did we get together and talk about what we were going to do? And that's good. And I do mean that. But even more than that, I mean that you understand that Jesus's advance to every nation is intentional. That he desires to go there to those people. So off the top of your head, if you know the population of Vermont, for example, and you said we might have how many confessional Lutheran churches in that state from any kind of confessional Lutheran synod, you're probably not going to get more than what you could count on two hands, I would be willing to bet. You said, well, how would we go there? That's one kind of intention, but you're not going to go there. You're not going to care. It's not going to matter until you understand what his intention is. And it's an intention that he's going to have to make clear in a variety of ways to a variety of people throughout the book of Acts. Peter, for instance, hasn't quite picked up on it or that he might be part of it. That's why he has this vision of what is clean and unclean. Now, if you go back in the Gospels, Jesus already made that clear in Mark 7. So clear. And maybe Peter got it in an intellectual way at the time. I don't know, but he needs some help. To understand what his intention is and what really defiles and therefore who may be reached. Now that is the main thing. And what I want to contend is that a lot of our inactivity in our own country is driven by despair. We feel that decline is terminal. Therefore, we are doing nothing. That is driven by an inattention to Jesus's intention. For every person who lives in Vermont or Tennessee or Oklahoma. And that if you understand that his advance through the nations, including your own, is intentional, then it's much easier to be intentional yourself as Antioch is in sending out missionaries. The second thing to do is that we build up and have as a set of standard talking points in the same way that a Lutheran pastor, if he met a medieval Roman Catholic, would be ready to go with talking points, that we have apologetic capacities for people who are lazily characterized as secular. What they seem to be most often, if you read scholars of, quote, secularization, is what came to be called now, and some people maybe even use as their own vocabulary, spiritual but not religious, meaning they have a variety of practices and beliefs. I referred to them in today's sermon as doctrine but this is not in an organized group of any fashion. They probably got it piecemeal off the internet. And that that is driving their sense of what's important. So for example, if you quiz the average American about Christian doctrine of the end times, perhaps he's heard the rapture. He 
He probably hasn't heard what you believe about the end times on the basis of scripture, but I bet if you asked him something about astrology, he would be better informed. So that what has replaced what gets called organized religion is instead disorganized religion or what, or what those folks themselves will now often call spirituality. It may be one reason that you're going to get a lot less objection to telling someone that you will pray for him than you do to get, giving him a specific Christian doctrine to think about or argue about with you. What you can see throughout Acts is that the apostles, and Paul is particularly like this, perhaps because of where he grew up, perhaps, they have pretty clear talking points about the resurrection of Jesus, the judgment, and the invalidity of the pagan gods, how they're nothing. Now, you can draw all of that very quickly out of the Old Testament, which is, of course, their source for these things, as well as the apostolic witness. But you'll notice that whether it's a little frustratingly for them in chapter 14, trying to stop the sacrifice they're trying to offer to Paul and Barnabas because of the wonders that they're performing by the power of the Holy Spirit, or in chapter 17, when Paul needs to explain where did everything come from and where is it all in Christ going, they are ready to talk to relatively normal, common beliefs. That's the main thrust of what it is that they know as they go into a world that is not just Gentile, but in a much clearer way and thorough way, pagan. I don't contend, therefore, that in the future, on a frontier, you need a less educated clergy, and certainly not a less educated or more simple-minded, less scripturally aware laity. You need more people to know far more. It is much harder to explain why you go to church if you're the only person at work who goes to church than it was maybe when you had to explain to your Baptist co-worker why your kids are baptized. At least he understands that you have a Bible and that's a valid place to find answers for things in life. So as we head into a more difficult situation, I contend we all need to know our stuff far better. And perhaps even some things such as, why don't you worship idols that we haven't thought about in a long time? So in addition to intentional advance and building our apologetic capacity, the last thing to do before we talk about what we will give up is that churches, local churches, will have to be practically integrated. Here's what I mean by that. The LCMS cross, whether you love it or don't love it as a logo or a visual symbol, you can't get enough of the three crosses that never meet, or you think it's the absolute worst kind of late 70s thing that you've ever seen, but we're still using the logo on like, say, the Houston Astros, right? Whatever, at least people recognize it. It's supposed to stand for something, and in some ways, it does. Now, that's, that's the power of branding, and that's a good thing, often. Practical integration is something other than branding. 
It means that local congregations that have the same confessions, certainly, would know what each other are doing. You'll notice this in Acts when you see people visiting each other or going back to Antioch and reporting on where they just were. Why do they do that? Because they have a sense that the advance of the gospel is their church's life too. Now, we will sometimes do this, and certainly the foreign missionary is not at all to blame for this, but it's very possible that in your own circuit, so maybe 15 or 20 miles from your congregation, a missionary came on one Sunday to that church and on the next Sunday to your church and told both of you what was going on in wherever he's serving, right? So uh, Uganda, right? That's great. Do you know what each other are doing? within 15 or 20 miles of each other. What's going on? Do you have new people coming in? Who are they? Are, is anybody moving into the neighborhood? Are, are you talking to them? That ignorance of each other's lives is totally permissible. That's why we do it under stable conditions. And stable for Americans since the Second World War has meant stably growing. So under those conditions, I can be totally ignorant of everything else that's going on in my circuit because I don't really need those people. It's not just that I'm not interested. Maybe I'm a little interested, but I don't really need them. If we need each other, we will be more practically integrated with each other, see each other as partners in a common work. The benefit of that is that one of the myths of the frontier. This is propagated by things like Westerns, but one of the myths is that people were actually highly individualistic. Generally, actually, the opposite was true. And you'll find it whenever people talk about the frontier, they'll reference, for instance, the incredible, and this goes back completely unintentionally in my mind to Dr. Truman's lecture earlier today, how hospitable everybody was that when you came to them, they would put you up and feed you for days. Stuff we could not imagine. Because when there are only a few other people doing what you're doing, you do tend to value them more than when you just assume that they're sort of your competitors and they're sort of your antagonists, but everybody's gonna be fine at the end of the day. If I need you, I probably will treat you better than otherwise. The churches in Acts continually demonstrate interconnection. This is actually true even between Antioch and Jerusalem. Look at what leads to chapter 15. A desire to keep practical peace in the church. So not saying that you like each other or you're going to be nice to each other or you'll politely ignore what you don't like about each other, but that we will actually seek common ground on, in that case, what is clean and what is unclean and what must be done to be saved, and we're going to talk about it and figure it out until we have some kind of answer. That happens because you know it needs to, not because you enjoy it. So we've talked about what to do, and we started with that agenda, intentional advance and apologetic capacity and practical integration, because I think it will make a little clearer why the things given up are what they are. 
when the things given up or the sacrifices necessary are easiest to see in the person of Paul. They're easiest to see in the person of Paul. So we'll use Paul, but like focusing on Acts or like focusing on Jerusalem and Antioch, I hope you'll be able to see these things in other places in the scriptures. And in thinking about the sacrifice part, just recall what it is that Peter says when Jesus asks whether sacrifices are going to happen. Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And Peter assures the Lord, yes, we have given up a whole list of things. And sometimes that list can be a little abstract. Some of us have suffered the loss of family members practically for the sake of the gospel. Maybe we've suffered the loss of property or income. That would be lands in a pre-industrial society. That's in the list. But I wanted to be a little more specific for our purposes, because I think that whether we're in some kind of center or feel we're fine or relatively stable, although you might admit that what I said earlier was somewhat true, when we make things a little bit more specific, I think they're a little easier to see. The first of them is prestige. Now, this is really hard for the church because the church in America has always had it to some degree. It was often divided up denominationally. Episcopalians always had more prestige than Baptists. That's why the joke that you may have heard about who goes to which church is based on whether you're wearing a pair of shoes or not to church My ancestors, almost entirely Baptists, apparently didn't own any shoes, right? So these things are divided up, but it's not like the Baptist church was therefore seen to be completely socially illegitimate in the way that for some of you at work or at school, your profession of Christianity, they don't know what you are and they don't care what your particular Christian confession is but your profession of Christianity full stop is illegitimate, bigoted, whatever other adjectives they may attach. The loss of prestige, which is for many people, almost all they have. Their lives might be mortgaged to the hilt, so sins against them in the realm of the seventh commandment don't hurt nearly as much as the fact that they do have a reputation left to them. So sins against them in the realm of the eighth commandment sting that much more because it's what they've got. They're not really solvent if all debts were called in at the same time, but at least people think that they are respectable. The loss of prestige is particularly difficult, and you can see it in Paul's life because you'll notice that people know about him before he gets there. You may even remember that's the question he asks when he finally gets to Rome, like he always wanted to, and he asks the Jewish leaders whom he's met there, basically, have you heard I'm a murderer, (laughs) right? Because everyone else has. Or they find out and then try to run him out of town. Or have you heard that I'm trying to turn the world upside down? No, we, we haven't heard about you, but we know Christianity is pretty awful. So do you want to explain that? 
Paul has lost in becoming the apostle of Christ, all the prestige he had built up beforehand. Now that is for him, life according to the flesh. And in the flesh, he has reason to be proud. Not only on the basis of his genealogy, but also on the basis of his energy that he displayed in being totally wrong. All that prestige built up has now been forsaken, reckoned as the offscourings of the sewer for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him. This is where, if you don't really put this before yourself in explicit terms, Christianity, particularly as it becomes more and more unstable around you, becomes much, much more difficult to profess. Not just believe inside of yourself and very quietly, but profess in a way that could cost you something if you haven't laid out for yourself, as the Gospels do for the disciples of Jesus, what the cost is going to be. The loss of prestige is so keen, especially when you have gained so much that you now have to lose. In addition to prestige, but not limited to reputation, that's why I'm differentiating this, okay? So we're not just talking about what might happen to you against the Eighth Commandment, but what might happen to you to defraud you of all kinds of things, according to many other commandments, is giving up familiar reward structures. Now, that's kind of a weird term, so let me give you an example of it. Familiar reward structure. Familiar reward structure in my profession is that generally the longer you're in it, the bigger your church. Maybe you made it bigger or you got, I'm talking very openly, <laughs> you got promoted to a bigger church, you got called to a bigger church, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that theologically we believe that, but I'm talking more about behavior than theology here. According to our theology, a call to any congregation with three people in it is a divine call that I need to consider seriously. But according to the flesh, which is what is nurtured when no sacrifice is required, the flesh is fed very easily on these things, it's not just more prestigious, you also are going to get paid more and you're going to have an assistant pastor so you can give him some of the stuff you don't want to do. And all, I mean, all kinds of things. Now I'm speaking about reward structures in my profession because I don't know what they are in everybody's profession, but you know what they are in your own profession. You know what they are in your life. You know what they are according to the people you grew up with or went to school with. What the gospel does and commitment to the gospel does to reward structures is that it blows them apart potentially anytime God wants. Maybe it's really true that Paul should be more recognized in the Jerusalem congregation for his efforts. But when he comes to Jerusalem, he just gets instructions from James about how to behave and then he gets arrested. They should have given him a trophy or something, right? Or say, Paul, I have a really nice call for you all set up here. They're former um, guys from your hometown, but they live in Jerusalem just like you grew up. And this is going to be really nice. And $20,000 more a year, Paul, I mean, this is pretty great. And Right? Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. That's okay. 
Those reward structures were built in, in churches, in my denomination or your denomination, if you're in a different one, on stability. They made sense. Um, people in rural areas could pay you less than people in suburban areas who could probably pay you more than everything except the biggest urban church. And so there's a certain uh, food chain. Now, maybe if I understand that I might be called to do something difficult or strange, maybe I understand that that reward structure probably wasn't true to begin with. But what I really understand now is that maybe it doesn't even exist anymore. The last sacrifice we'll talk about is one that I mean in a way both physical, perhaps, but certainly spiritual. And that is the notion, I think it was always an illusion. I'm just trying to say it was a notion. The notion of safety. That proclaiming the gospel, whether you do it professionally, so you're going into something that's kind of like being a doctor or a lawyer. It has certain social prestige and you have more education and people respect you and stuff like that. But even if it's simply your calling in Christ that all baptized Christians have, that you have in being a Christian a certain amount of safety. And so your choice now, you know, if it were actually safe, your choices would be limited to are you attracted to the church where you want to, you know, make the most business connections in that town? Or are you, you going to go to that church that you kind of church you were raised in? That doesn't matter so much anymore because all forms of Christian profession are relatively unsafe. They are public health emergencies or cause therefore, or they are difficult to discuss with HR, that they are more or less unsafe. This is really easy to see with Paul because he's all set up for a certain life for which he's trained and then he is sent out. But this one I save for last because I think it's the easiest one for us, not just to imagine, but it's one that we live. It's one that we know. Acceptance of the danger that Christianity entails, and there's a whole list that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians specifically of dangers that he's encountered, danger from all manner of sources, then we are beginning to understand something that I think we have often forgotten, and certainly in the clergy we have often forgotten, which is that I was called to die. Fundamentally unsafe thing to do. I was called to die. And that happens many, many times over. We say it in the small catechism that we're doing it every day, that I would, by daily contrition and repentance, it's just a little easier to live when other people are helping me see it. So it's not a theological exercise I can go through in the privacy of my library. It is something that I'm going to face when I go to work, or it is something that I'm going to face when I go to this family gathering with people who have been alienated from me by all manner of things. That safety is now fleeing away. This is one reason that I find the past generally more helpful than the present. I almost never read books written, and I'm 
writing books myself right now, but I almost never read books written any time in the recent past, especially theology books. Here's the reason why. I find the conditions of the frontier more recognizable. I find, for example, the passion of a David Henkel, not just about baptism, but about the necessity of maintaining local control over the spread of the gospel, much easier to understand than many things from a time that is much closer to me in time, but a lot more unrecognizable, a time of growing stability and intramural debate. That what's much more recognizable is the idea that there is wilderness all around, and there's more of it all the time. More strange ideas and more strange people and more strange spiritual influences, particularly affecting not only our own people, but everybody we encounter. So it's much more recognizable that I say there's danger all around. That's, I was told that. You could die doing this. There's difficulty and hardship everywhere. I was actually told that too. I just, like Peter, I didn't pick up on it. And all around me are people for whom Christ died, for whom he intends his gospel to be preached. That's every creature. I just didn't quite pick up on it because I had my stuff at my stable center. So in this way, the encroachment of the frontier and the disintegration of a stable center has been very helpful, not only for seeing things I should have seen a long time ago, but accepting the work that we have to do as the church in the future. That we can begin to imagine if we would go back to some of the lessons that people like David Henkel have, us, have to teach us, we can imagine a future not having to accept terminal decline, not having to fight incessantly on our way down, but we could actually accept that we could go somewhere with this. We have much bigger numbers than Jerusalem or Antioch, if you're looking at numbers. We have way bigger resources than Jerusalem or Antioch, if you want resources. It's not even quite that bad. But even if it were, we know that the intention of the Lord is to go where currently Satan rules and to dethrone him in the hearts of men. We know that. So knowing that, we can go forward. Thank you. Questions for Dr. Kuntz. Thank you. Um, I. Um, recently heard that there are 50-some calls out for pastors in the Missouri Senate, yeah. um, which have not been filled because of lack of manpower to yeah. sin. Yeah. What, are you, what are your thoughts on that? So I, um, in this case, I would say it's actually even worse than that. Um, I think the 50 number is who was requested um, that was not filled from either of our two seminaries in the spring. Um, it's worse than that in the sense that you have lots of congregations that weren't trying to call that have, um, and I visited some of these congregations, that have given up hope of ever getting a pastor or that were told 
um, usually by someone from somewhere far away, that they should just close. And then they haven't, but they don't know what else to do. So um, we're currently dealing with something that was talked about when Dr. Phillips and I started going to seminary, which was we don't have enough pastors. And at the time, that didn't actually seem to be true. It's definitely true now. That's a that's a that's part of the knock-on effect of COVID that I, that I didn't talk about because I want to talk about churches. But as far as the pastorate specifically goes, that average age of an LCMS pastor, lower than our members' average age, is still very high, and so therefore very much affected by uh, the Great Resignation. Right after COVID, all the folks that were just like, I'm, you know, I'm I'm done. <laughs> I'm good. I don't need to keep going to work. Um, but also by demographic shifts in that, you know, when, um, one, you know, one gentleman I served with, he was a campus pastor, um, in the 1980s state school campus pastor, he would send roughly half the number of guys to seminary every year that I graduated with in total because the classes at St. Louis at that time are approaching 200, right? So if we had 200 guys 35, 40 years ago, and now from the same seminary, we're graduating 40, you do the numbers. So that's, that's not just a function of demographics, like, oh, we don't have enough guys in the pastorate. True. It's also a function of we're going to have a lot of, we have plenty of churches that have no reason to not survive, except they don't have pastors. Not to speak of the ones that have, you know, three folks hanging on. Yep. Next question. little jarred by your use of Detroit as a metaphor, and then your Approaching shift. frontier. <laughs> well, then yeah. you're using you the word frontier. Yeah. Uh, to me, frontier, you know, the Frederick Turner thesis uh, suggests, you know, virgin, untouched land, yeah. uh, teeming with fish and birds and... Uh, forests that have not yet been felled, fields that have not yet been plowed. Yeah. Uh, what we're really facing, though, uh, we're not really even dealing with pagans. We're really dealing with a people that are apostate. And I think it's important that we wrestle with that word because th these are people that once did believe or came from a culture that did believe and now have deliberately abandoned and rejected it. So it seems we're a bit more, uh, perhaps uh, Pastor Cooper, I, I bet, could speak to this because you live in the area once known as the burned out, the burned over territory, you know, that all those revivals up there. And it seems that's in a sense what we're dealing with, with, with burned over territory. And we have to approach that differently than we do a frontier. Okay. Um... At least two things there. One, this is a function of the varying religious demographics of different regions, states, parts of states, cities, um, is that one thing I would contend about the rural Northeast particularly is that we are not apostate. We haven't been Christian for generations. Right? So... Um, on my mother's side of the family, for example, this is Western New York, since there was a Western New York, um, no church attendance for five generations. 
So you're going back to after the Civil War. So that's one situation. That's a very different situation from I'm in rural Alabama and this 18-year-old actually knows he's supposed to believe in Jesus Christ. He just, he doesn't, or he's, he's doing something weird that he learned about, you know, offering sacrifices on the internet, right? Um, and this is where, you know, Paul is not equipped for Lyconia, for example, because they are too far beyond the Hellenistic world he grows up in. So he just cannot even communicate with them. So um, I, I don't find it helpful in that way to think of the United States as a single nation in any kind of biblical sense with the people of some sort of common life that they've had for generations. I mean, by that measure, right, you got the, is it Colin Woodward book about the American nations? I think there's even way more. I think he comes up with 11. I think there's way more than that, right? And if you bring in, you say, well, what about Hmong people who live in Wisconsin? Well, they've got their own history, right? Not only their own practices, but their own whole stuff that they've dealt with and the second generation gets. So the, I, that's, that's my, I, I accept that there are apostate people who have rejected stuff, but they're probably people who had stronger religious belonging to begin with in various cultures, right? Uh, Roman Catholics, for example, Lutherans, right? Um, if you fall off the wagon from the Baptist tradition, you're just gone. <laughs> Where do you go, right? Um, and that's so that's what happened in my specific instance, right? Um, to your your second point about, um, or my second point about what you said, um, I think for that reason, that's also going to govern, and you can see this in the way that the apostles talk to different groups, both your topics. There's a central message that they keep returning to. Jesus is risen. He's going to come again to judge the world. But for instance, the reasoning with Felix discusses self-control, something Paul does not spend a ton of time on in talking to fellow Jews. So this is where, as far as apologetic capacity goes, we need people to be highly attuned to the average person they're meeting rather than the average person they think they want to meet or they're comfortable with or they're accustomed to. Um, because you can see Paul actually able to change topics very effectively and clearly depending on who he's talking to. With Felix, he's not spending a ton of time being like, you want to know who the Messiah is? Because Felix doesn't particularly need to know that right now. Yeah, or isn't interested in that word, certainly. Maybe one final question. Uh, do you want to speak uh, maybe a word of encouragement to our young men who are here who could be studying to be pastors? Um, number one, you never wake up and wonder, what am I doing with my life? Um, it's always clear and its value is always obvious. Um, and it's eternally significant. So that's kind of, it's kind of hard, I would say, besides being a father, which nobody's going to pay you to do, um, it's kind of the only thing of eternal significance you're going to do. Um, everything else is going to serve whatever your vocation, your family that God's given you. It could serve lots of other things, the city you live in, the country you grew up in, whatever. But of eternal significance, it's kind of hard to find anything that competes. Um, number two is that it is great 
and I, this runs contrary to some people's experience, and I understand that, I've found it to be wonderful for raising a family. It's a great way to raise a family. My kid's life centers on their church, you know, and so they grow up wanting to participate in that, wanting to be a part of that. The boys, you know, at various times and in various ways have talked about wanting to be pastors. You know, we'll see what happens, but... Um, so the basic things that I think are really important in life, which is God and my family, being a pastor helps me focus my life and what I'm doing with my life on those things. And that, that's, that's been wonderful. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet... You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, 
Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.